From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father John Tregilio is warming up in the bullpen, getting ready to field your questions here on EWTN's (laughs) Open Line Monday. If you've got a question, we'd love to talk to you. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is here every Monday from the Mount, Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Father John Tregilio, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. How was your faculty meeting last week that you blew oh, us off for? Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> Penance. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd rather be doing open line is what you're saying. I hate meetings. I, You know, the first meeting occurred after the fall of Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve conspired with each other behind the bushes and God cast them out of the garden. <laughs> oh, boy. So meeting's bad. That's the bottom line here. <laughs> yes. That's the take-home message. Got an email here from Marsha, and the 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 wise guy in me has an answer queued up and ready to go, but I'll let you answer it. Mm-hmm. Marsha wants to know how do the saints hear our prayers? Uh, well, they have no ears because they're, yeah, that's where, that's where bodies, I was going. <laughs> their bodies are <laughs> decomposing in the earth, so the only people with with ears literally Jesus and Mary because their bodies are in heaven. So obviously, without Uh, having a body you don't have use of your five senses and human beings are designed in such a way that um, our information and our intellect comes to us through the body through the senses therefore saint thomas aquinas tells us in his summa theologica that god infuses knowledge into uh, the intellects of the saints so they are able to know things uh, even though they don't have a body and because we believe in the communion of saints we certainly believe that the saints hear and see what's going on here on earth by God's uh, divine will. Therefore, they, you know, they can hear us in a sense. Uh, their mind knows when we're praying and what we're asking for. Um, you know, in that one parable of Jesus with the the rich man um, Dives and the poor man Lazarus, there's a scene where um, the rich or the Lazarus, the poor man, is in heaven and he's with father abraham well you know that gives us a good sign that there is some communication going on 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines. It'll be crowded later on. 833-288-3986. John writes in, If God knew that there was going to be so much suffering, why did he create us at all? He created us because... Uh, whatever suffering we en- endure because of our free will, uh, that was a choice that we made. And our free will uh, in no way uh, impacts the decision we make. That's why it's called free will. We can choose to do good, and there's consequences. We can choose to bo- do, do bad, and there's consequences. And if I do evil and other people suffer, those, that's also on, on my conscience. Uh, I have participated in that. And... You know the the whole issue of why there's suffering in the world. Uh, suffering did not exist um, uh, until the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, there was a p- uh, period of tranquility, peace, and harmony, and sin creates a rupture in that, and it causes disorder. And there's basically why there is uh, suffering uh, in the world. It's not that each person is personally suffering in proportionate. To whatever good or evil they do. So when you see someone who's born with a disability uh, or they're um, having some problem with their bodies or with life in general, you cannot jump to the conclusion they did something wrong because Jesus dispels that when they brought to him uh, a man who was uh, deaf and blind. And they said, well, whose sin caused this, his mother's, his father's, or his own? And he said, neither. It was to show the glory of God. So, um, you know, as St. Paul says, we we can unite our sufferings with that of Christ and then therefore make it redemptive. Uh, Salvifici Dolores is a wonderful document written by uh, St. John Paul the Great. Uh, It gives us a good insight into that. You know what else has been going on since the fall? What? Meetings. (laughs) That's suffering. (laughs) I had a great great theologian, uh, faculty member at a seminary, tell me that once. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Madison would like to know, is it sinful to receive communion when you've arrived late to Mass? Well, if you arrive late to Mass, it's your fault and you are doing it consistently, uh, you're not doing, making any effort to get there on time, then it could be at least a venial sin, uh, depending on how late you are. If it's a Sunday Mass, you have the obligation to be there, and you just decided to dilly-dally, you're um, you know, goofing off, um, you stayed up late and you were carousing and boozing it up or whatever, um, and you get there late, you get there uh, you know, after the Gospel, you could be more guilty. importantly after the uh, after the, um, the collection. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say after the uh, after the uh, help me out, bail me out here after the penitential rite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know there was always a question when I was a kid. Uh, they asked a Monsignor like, "What time during the mass can will it be venial? Then it would, would it be mortal?" And he would tongue in cheek say to us. You get there before the collection, all right? <laughs> he was a typical pastor. But in all earnestness, if it's through no fault of your own, you're stuck in traffic or your car wouldn't start or you got a flat tire, you can't find the keys, any number of things, all right, th- these mitigate your, your culpability or even destroy it completely. But if you're just lazy and you're not paying attention, 
uh, it can progress from venial to even mortal, so you want to keep an eye on that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Sean says, why do you have to go to a priest to confess sin? Because Jesus gave that a power, that authority to forgive sins. And Easter day, when he went to the apostles, breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Why would he give this very awesome gift to the apostles if he didn't want them to use it? And so from the very first moment, the church always understood that uh, the priests and the bishops had this uh, awesome uh, responsibility to forgive sins in the name of Christ. Because just as in baptism, it's Jesus who baptizes. In penance, it's Jesus who absolves. But through the power of the priest who's ordained to act in his person, in persona Christi, to act as an altar Christus, as another Christ. So if Jesus hadn't done that, and if the church hadn't started that practice, now, private confession started with the Irish monks in the... In the uh, 7th century. Prior to that, people would make confessions openly, but when you think about, you know, during the times of the Roman persecution, everybody knew everything anyway, so it wasn't really much of a secret. If you denounced the faith and, you know, uh, told the Romans where, you know, the other Christians were living, people knew who who the rat was, you know. Mm. Uh, They knew who fingered them, so uh, the need for confidentiality was not as great, but later on, as more and more uh, people became Christian, and the Catholic community grew and grew. Uh, the ne- the need for uh, privacy and confidentiality uh, became more and more obvious. And it was the Irish monks who brought us this great uh, gift of of the private confession. You know, Father, you've had the great privilege of of serving in several uh, pretty distinctly different roles as a priest in the church. And when we get this question, I think it, it is invariably almost always from a non-Catholic, um, you know, or perhaps a fallen away Catholic. And I think that um, anybody who has actually experienced the sacrament legitimately and has heard those words, I absolve you from your sins, would no longer have the need to ask this question, would they? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, you're not there to get yelled at. This is not going to traffic court. Um, you know, we're there to be the healer of the soul. And you hear those wonderful words, as you said, of absolution, I absolve you of your sins. So, you know, it's a wonderful affirmation of God's mercy. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hot off the presses for September uh, from EWTN Publishing, a great new book from our good friend Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits. This book will inflame your heart with love for Jesus' Eucharistic heart through the heart of his mother. 
It will help you enter into meditation with Jesus and Mary as never before and will open your heart to receive the graces available from the sacred mysteries. You'll find ways to rekindle the fire of divine love in your prayer life and grow in loving communion with our Lord in the Eucharist. And you'll be inspired by moving stories of saints, including Faustina, the Fatima children, and our late Holy Father, St. Pope John Paul the Great. And we will, uh, and you'll also learn how to apply these uh, lessons to your own daily faith journey. It's an ideal resource for Eucharistic revival. Thirty Marian Eucharistic visits by Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle available at ewtnsrc.com uh, by Catholic Shop ewtnrc.com. Still two lines open for you at eight three three two eight eight ewtn. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. First up today is David in Atlanta, Georgia. He is listening on a Blaze Radio. First time caller today. David, you're on with Father Tregilio. Hello, how are you doing today? I hope you're having a good day. Thank you. Uh, my question is uh, about heaven, and I wanted to know uh, what one can expect uh, in the afterlife with heaven. What is heaven like? That is an excellent question, because I think too many Christians don't think enough about it. We just sort of presume we're going to end up there, and even if, you know, that's the case, you do get to heaven. It's, you know, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into mind of man what God has in store for us in heaven. And yet, we want to motivate people and say they want to get to heaven so much, so badly, they'll do anything to get there. So the best thing to do is to use your imagination and meditate on what heaven could possibly be like. And certainly uh, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, tells us that it makes sense that once the, the body is resurrected and it's reunited with the soul and you're in heaven, then all the senses will be totally satisfied. So you'll, be, you'll see the most gorgeous things you could ever imagine. You will uh, feel the nicest uh, materials, uh, wonderful aromas, uh, it'll be like, you know, uh, Nona's kitchen smelling a little lasagna. Mmm, hungry already. Um, <laughs> all the things that are good, that are pleasing, uh, your body will be uh, satiated. But more importantly, your intellect, which seeks uh, the truth, and your will, which seeks the good, will be totally, perfectly satisfied because you will see God face to face. We call that the beatific vision. And you will see God. Uh, as he is in himself, you will be filled with truth, you'll be filled with goodness. Um, the joy, the ecstasy is is beyond comprehension, but we need to approach that. Um, it's not something that's merely temporal, so it's not, you know, this idea of, you know, you're laying on a, um, on a bed and people are popping grapes into your mouth, uh, nor is it this idea that you're wearing a white robe, you got wings and you're fiddling on a harp. Um, you know, that that's nice for Hollywood, but that doesn't really motivate people to want to be willing to endure martyrdom so you can play a harp and float on a cloud. But when you think of being reunited with all your loved ones who are in heaven, uh, the absolute joy without end. Um, I remember I was talking to the third graders once in religion class, and I said, you know, it's going to be one eternal act of worship. And the kid goes, you mean it's like an, a mass that never ends? <laughs> I said, well... Not in the earthly sense, but yes, there's a divine liturgy in, in, in heaven, but it's not an unending sermon that bores you. Uh, it's the, the joy, the, the music, 
uh, everything that you can imagine and more. So think of the of the most beautiful things, most enjoyable things, and then you, you up it to the 1,000th degree, and even that is just scratching the surface. You know, I was thinking recently, Father, I was kind of uh, thinking about the, the, the story of the Pearl of Great Price um, in the Gospels, and, and it was... And I started thinking that, you know, we really don't have an appreciation for the value of a pearl in our society, really. No. And most of us don't really understand what that means. But So I, I started thinking of a common correlation. And really, if we knew, if we had any kind of a tangible idea of what heaven was, you know, if we won one of these lottery jackpots that have gotten up over a billion with a B dollars recently, we would forego that without even thinking about it in exchange to go straight to heaven if we knew really what it was all about, wouldn't we? Absolutely. And the problem is too many people just presume they're going and they figure, oh, well, it'll be what it is. Or they don't use your imagination. St. Ignatius of Loyola really promoted this idea of using your imagination. And yeah, imagine that, you know, you win not just a billion dollars, but you won a zillion dollars and you could do absolutely anything with it, uh, you know, the, what, all the good that you could do. I mean, just sharing it with your friends, uh, spending, I mean, so many people think of things that are not necessarily material, but having a good conversation with someone they like, um, spending uh, fun times with, with family and that, uh, that's what heaven's going to be about. It's, you're not alone on a cloud. You're in God's house. It's singular. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. So we're going to be connected and united with all the people we've, we've loved and who've loved us, uh, as well as people we've never even met before. My dad, before he died, kept saying, he goes, I want to see Joe DiMaggio. I said, okay, Dad, <laughs> uh, I hope you do, and I uh, hope he's up there. And uh, But that's he had a great grasp on that. And he kept saying, I, want, I got to go home to see my boys. Me and my brother thought he was talking about us. Well, no, he was talking about my two brothers who predeceased him, and he was when he wanted to go home to heaven to see them. That's the way to look at heaven. Awesome. Thanks, David. That was a great phone call. We appreciate it today. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Walter is in Graham, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Walter, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, yes, I was wondering. Uh, recently, I just found out that... Uh, in 1957, uh, Sister Lucia gave her last uh, interview, and she said that Mary had recently visited her and was very upset uh, with the people for not recognizing what happened, what, what the miracle she uh, when she appeared in 1917, and the miracle of the sun. And I was just wondering: is this? Uh, she never gave another interview after that, and I was wondering: is it is it true? And uh, one, one and uh, why it's never spoken about. And one last question is um, at, at at church. Why I don't understand this. I never have. Why uh, Mary or Jesus? Why the priest doesn't say, uh, "Please, Mary or Jesus, appear here and help us out." That would be the real uh, God type situation. And I was just wondering, is it too taboo or whatever? But anyway, that's my question. Okay, well, thank you for calling. And uh, certainly we, we have to remember um, our friend Thomas the Apostle 
uh, he did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He was absent for the first appearance of the risen Lord. And he said, "I won't believe until I put my hands into his the, the his uh, my hands into his hands where the wounds were where he was nailed to the cross and his feet and to his side." And he said, "When he uh, the second time when Jesus appeared and Thomas was there, and Thomas you know makes that profession of faith, my Lord and my God." He says, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. So faith is believing what you cannot see. So rather than proving uh, our faith, you know, it, it's more um, meritorious on our part to believe that God really exists, that he loves us, that Mary and the saints are praying for us, even though we don't see them. So we're not really asked to have a prove it to me, show me, uh, like Thomas did, Thomas was rewarded, but that was because Jesus wanted to show the other apostles and us that, you know, he's, he's really the Lord of life and death. So we don't want to put God to the test and, and demand uh, some kind of proof because then it's not faith. Uh, faith is believing what, what you cannot see. Um, uh, what was the other? I forgot what the other part Sister of the question Lucia's was. Sister Lucia's interviewing. Oh, Sister Lucia's, yes. Um, I've met a few people who actually talked to Sister Lucia. We have to remember that private revelation can never trump public uh, revelation. Public revelation is what's contained in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. And even though I certainly believe, and the church uh, has um, sort of given its stamp of approval uh, to Marian apparitions in Fatima and Lourdes, uh, a Catholic's still free to say, I don't really believe that happened. You can say that and not be a bad Catholic. I believe Mary did appear in Fatima. I do believe in the miracle of the sun. But again, it wasn't done to prove anything. It was there to bolster the faith. And I'm sure Our Lady was not happy that not everyone uh, got on board. Um, remember, she said a Second World War could have been averted if people repented, if they prayed the rosary, and they did not. Some did, but not everyone. Uh, she asked that uh, you know the, the world be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart especially Russia. Um, there are a lot of things talked about what may have been in the, uh, the, the Fatima secret or the letter that uh, she handed over to the Pope. Uh, but there are, whenever you get things that sound a little, you know, um, mysterious and spooky, you have to say to ourselves, no, we have to step back. Uh, private revelation cannot contradict public revelation. And uh, we have to always remember that God's revelation to us that we have divine revelation, uh, as I said, through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. That's meant for everybody. It's out in the open. There's no secret. Uh, the secret, that, and in fact, they call the secret only because the letter was to be given directly to the Pope and no one else. It doesn't tell you the day of the end of the world. doesn't tell you the name of the Antichrist. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger made it clear when Pope John Paul disclosed what was the part of that last secret, it really wasn't anything you know more than what people expected anyway so i don't want people to get their hopes up in seeing things because then it wouldn't be faith you have to trust in what god has said and just take him for his word thanks walter 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number next up is another first-time caller nathan in the great state of indiana listening to our great affiliate tri-state catholic radio nathan you're on with father tregilio all right, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I had a question uh, about two Fridays ago. I was listening to the show, and someone called in about the St. Gertrude prayer, which um, my son had actually found a card for that 
in um, adoration a few months ago, and he's, he really likes the prayer, and he's been leading that prayer every night ever since, and he really liked the idea that it promises a thousand souls will be freed from purgatory. But last Friday, someone called in and asked about that, and uh, the, the priest then said, well, that's a superstition, that's a, a superstitious thing. And so I was wondering, uh, what makes that superstitious as opposed to, say, uh, divine mercy guaranteeing a, an indulgence, and is it okay to say the prayers? So. Awesome. Hang in there, Nathan. We'll get to that and to Stephanie and Chris as well. It's EWTN's Open Line, Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN Radio family, Salt and Light Radio in Boise, Idaho, and Twin Falls, Idaho, and across a good portion of the state of Idaho, celebrating their 14th year as an EWTN affiliate. They're now heard on nine AM and FM stations in English and Spanish. Congratulations to our good friend Keith Patty John and his whole team at Salt and Light Radio from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. We're talking to Nathan in uh, the great state of Indiana, and he's wondering... uh, Father John, what the difference, uh, is there any legitimacy to the claims made by those who pray the St. Gertrude prayer? Is there anything wrong with praying that? And if it is superstitious, which some have claimed to some degree, uh, what would make it any different than, even if it's not superstitious, what would make it any different from, say, the Divine Mercy Chaplet? Okay, well, it is a good question, and I am familiar with this, the St. Gertrude prayer. It's very similar to the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Uh, invoking the the precious blood of Christ, um, the superstitious aspect we can see even like with the um, the Vita de Saint Jude. As a pastor, I would often find people leaving little pamphlets, or um, people would actually put uh, ads in the new, local newspaper, and there'd be a little thing at the bottom after the prayer to Saint Jude: uh, "Make nine copies of this, and on the ninth day, you're guaranteed." Um, there's where the superstition comes in, where people act as if this is something magical, that if you say these words, then just saying those words, something will happen. Um, the prayer of, of St. Gertrude, the Divine Mercy Chaplet, the Novena of St. Jude, have to be done in faith. And if they're done in faith, you're always, as Jesus even said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, yours be done. So if it's God's will, that there be something uh, come as a result of saying those prayers, it's up to God. Uh, he may certainly let a thousand souls out of purgatory. I don't think we have to ever worry about purgatory uh, getting empty and there being a um, a big vacancy sign. Uh, we're going to need it till the you know the end of, end of the world, so to speak. So I am not going to you know poo poo the um, Saint Gertrude prayer, but I would say in all these instances, one must do it in the right context, in the right spirit, and say yes. Uh, St. Gertrude was a mystic, but we go back to that original thing I said a few moments ago. These are private revelations, which can never contradict public revelation. And the, the you know certainly St. Faustina, she had a um, you know apparition of Jesus, and we the church um, certainly um, approves of it. 
but you don't have to believe that to, to be Catholic. It's considered private revelation. But I do the Divine Mercy Chapel myself. The seminarians do it. I know seminarians who do the St. Gertrude Prayer, and they do the Novena to St. Jude. So it's how it's done and why it's done as opposed to just doing it. Does that help, Nathan, clear it up a little bit? Yeah, I, th I think it does. So basically you're saying if, if I'm expecting a, a certain result as if it's uh, a, a guarantee or magic, then it's superstitious, but yes. there's nothing inherently wrong with the prayer itself. No, no, because the Church would have condemned <clears throat> it if that were the case. God bless you, Nathan. We appreciate that question today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Stephanie. She is in El Paso, Texas, listening on the EWTN app. Another first-time caller. Stephanie, how is West Texas today? Oh, it's a beautiful day in El Paso, Texas. Thank you. You're very welcome. What's your question today? So I have a question. Is it okay to hang photos of the dead with the living? So, for example, on the same wall or displaying them together on the on a desk or something like that? Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing disrespectful. There's nothing wrong morally or spiritually. Um, you know, my... My uh, family, my mom and dad, they buried uh, three of their children before they, they, they passed away. And we had this picture of my brother, Michael, uh, was done after he died. It was a painting. They put it over the fireplace. And then when my brother, Joe, was killed by a drunk driver, his picture was placed up on the fireplace. And then next to him were pictures of my mom and dad while they were still alive, me and my brother, Mark. Um, because even though if you're living or dead, we certainly believe in the immortal soul, and as St. Paul tells us, even death does not unravel uh, the ties of love that bind us. So um, you're not being uh, any way disrespectful or being irreligious if you put a picture of someone who's living with, next to a picture of someone who's deceased. It's only when people start treating the picture as if it, if it is the person themselves. Um, you know, they're getting weird about that. But uh, the pictures are reminders uh, certainly they engender uh, loving memories of those people. And whether they're dead or alive, images of them, as hunks or not, uh, worshiping them, which I don't, I've never seen anyone do that, by the way, but they're nice reminders of us, of people who are either living or dead. So I don't think there's any problem with mixing them up, so to speak, in that regard, having a living person and a picture of a dead person uh, side by side. God bless you, Stephanie. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call with your question at 833-288-3986. Chris is in Atlanta, Georgia, listening on The Quest. Chris, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hey, everybody. Um, Father, I was just wondering... Outside of the abortion clinic, there are a number of people who go in and come out, and they presume the forgiveness of the Lord. And I want to know, at what point does presumption of forgiveness become a sin, and how? Okay, that's an excellent question. Uh, presumption is just as bad as despair. Despair is believing that you can't be forgiven. Presumption is you just you're you're. Um, Take it for granted that you will be forgiven. Um, 
one of the necessary requirements of forgiveness is that one's contrite, one's sorry for their sins, and they also have a firm purpose of amendment that they want to avoid this in the future. So where presumption kicks in into full-blown mortal sin is when somebody does something wrong and they have no remorse for what they've done and they have no intention if things, if they were able to do it over again, that they would do it differently, uh, that they just, you know, uh, they're going to tell God they're sorry and that's all, it's just a m- bunch of words that are being said. And sometimes I have, to, uh, you know, uh, it, it's possible, I don't think it's it's very probable, but someone could go to the sacrament of confession if they presume just by going in there and saying the words, yes, the priest doesn't know, but God knows that that person is not really contrite, then it's uh, it's an invalid, it's an irreverent, it's a blasphemous uh, confession because, you know, part of that is the sorrow, the contrition, the contrition for sin. Um, but my experience as a priest has been most people, if not uh, almost everyone I've ever had in the confessional, they're there for a reason. They're, they They want to repent. They're sorry for what they've done. If they weren't sorry, why would they go in there? But it certainly leaves in the realm of metaphysical possibility. Somebody might want to just go through the motions. That would be wrong. Um, so presumption is taken for granted, and that's just as bad as, as the, the sin of despair where you you know, you know feel you're unforgivable. Uh, you, you want to avoid that as much as presuming that, hey, you know, I, I, I got to get out of jail free card. I don't have to worry about anything. We've got wide open phone lines for you on this EWTN Open Line Monday, 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number if you've got a question about the Catholic faith. Perhaps there's something you see at Mass every week that you've never really understood. Give us a call. Father John would be happy to explain that to you. Or perhaps you're in conversation with one of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters and they've asked you a question that you find difficult to answer, we'd love to talk about that with you at 833-288-3986. Michael asks, if God loves us, why should we fear him? Well, it, if fear not is not the same as terror. Uh, it's reverential fear. When we talk about fear of the Lord, it's not like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid. Uh, we're shaking in our boots, so to speak. It's reverential fear in the same way that you know we should fear things that could hurt us, but also, um, you know, I, I had a fear of my dad, but not in a, in, a, uh, in a bad sense. It wasn't a terror. But I respect him enough that I didn't want to disappoint him. And when I was very little, I didn't want to be punished by him. Um, but that was reverential fear, um, that you didn't want to ruin or disrupt your relationship with him, whether you got punished or not. In fact, when I became an adolescent and... I got the look on my dad's face of disappointment. That was worse than any corporal punishment I could have got. Um, so that's what we want to have with our with God is this reverential fear of the Lord that we don't want to disappoint Him, that we don't want to betray uh, our re- our respect and love for for Him. Um, but it's different from fear in the sense that you know people are uh, afraid of heights. You know, I'm I'm a little acrophobic myself. Some people are afraid of of groups. Some people are afraid of, um, you know, uh, bats or rats, you know, things like that. That's that's a fear. That's that's a terror. That's uh, uh, completely different, whereas this reverential fear is, is awe and respect. Even if you, like, a fear of fire, not just that you have this obsessive fear, but that you, you say, hey, this could be dangerous, and yet we need fire. We need fire to cook uh, 
for cook our food and to heat water so we can uh, you know take a take a shower but having this proper respect uh, is what is what we're talking about here so we're not going to see you working on the high steel anytime soon not on the high steel and not with bats or rats <laughs> <laughs> um, Travis writes in is there any theological leeway for us to have married priests it's not a theological uh, issue because in the uh, Eastern Catholic Church, uh, the Byzantine and other uh, branches of the Eastern Catholic Church, they've always had the option of married clergy. But the provision is, and this is the same with the Eastern Orthodox as well as Eastern Catholic, that one must be married before they're ordained, and only those who are not or, uh, not married, uh, the celibate ordained, can become bishops. That's always been the case with them. That would always be the case with us. Um, celibacy is considered a discipline. There is a theology behind it, but obviously we allow for it. Uh, we have married um, priests of the Latin Rite who were formerly Protestant ministers. Uh, they were married um, just before, I mean, they were married and then were ordained as Catholic priests. So, you know, they're not giving up their wife, so to speak, to become a, a Catholic priest. But they're the exception, and it's not the panacea because uh, I talked to some Protestant uh, friends of mine who are ministers, and they said, look, we got married clergy, we have female clergy, and we still have a vocation shortage. So you you on the Roman side there don't think that this is going to fill the ranks, so to speak. But um, it's primarily a discipline in the West. It was uh, made a normative around 309 with the Council of Elvira, and then it became mandatory in the 11th century under Pope Gregory. Uh, but that's for the Latin Rite Church. In the Eastern, uh, they had the option of married clergy. But again, you had to be married and then ordained. You can't be ordained and then likewise get married afterwards. Uh, we head to the great state of Iowa next. Ron is in Iowa listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ron, you are on with Father Tregilio. Hi, Father. I just have a question about uh, we, we were we were traveling and visiting with some friends over the weekend, and we went by a church, and it said St. Teresa Catholic Church. And I asked my friends about it, because they're Catholic, and I said, hey, we should go there, because the sign says they do traditional Latin Mass. And our friends said, no, it's not a sanctioned church. And so I looked up all the churches within that diocese, and it wasn't listed on the diocese, but it said... Catholic Church, traditional Latin Mass, it had all the normal Catholic things out front. Um, I mean, it looked like a real Catholic Church. So I have a jillion questions about it, but I just can't figure <laughs> out how does the Church say that they're Catholic when they're not sanctioned by the diocese? Okay, that that's a good question. Um, certainly, if they have a validly ordained priest, and he does says the words as it's contained in the Roman Missal, this is my body, this is my blood. He uses wheat bread and grape wine. Uh, it would be a valid mass. Um, where the problem is, is that you've got these independent uh, churches that are not under the jurisdiction of the Pope or the local bishop. Uh, you've got some who are with the Society of Pius X. You've got some that are with Society of Pius V. And then you've got some that are completely, totally independent, autocephalous, whatever you want to call them, um, we don't want the faithful to be going to those places regularly to support them because they're disrupting the unity of the church, and yet 
you know, the Rome has made it clear that if you go to one of these churches, it's valid. Uh, it, it would count for your Sunday obligation. We just don't want people to become regular parishioners there because you should be supporting your parish and you can join whatever parish you want now with the 1983 Code of Canon Law. It's no longer only restricted to where you geographically live, but we want you to become a part of a parish, that you support them financially as well as spiritually. Um, these little independent churches, we don't want to you know, sort of fan the fire, so to speak, and promote this uh, disunity and disloyalty. So we do want people to, to look at the whole big picture and say, yes, they have a valid mass, but and it even be illicit mass, but are they promoting unity, and are they praying for the Holy Father and the local bishop? If not, you know, that th that was sort of the what, the aftermath of the of the schism between the Eastern, East and the West in the 11th century. Uh, they separated, and they no longer pray for the, the, the bishop or the pope in, of Rome. They don't pray for the, the local Roman bishop either. So, Yes, uh, they exist, you know, uh, if they're kosher, pardon the, <laughs> the pun, uh, it would be a valid mass. But we don't want to be, you know, contributing towards um, further disunion in the church. God bless you, Ron. Thank you so much for the phone call today. You know, EWTN Radio brings you the Holy Rosary twice every day, and we've been doing it for over 25 years. You can tune in every morning at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time for Mother Angelica and the beautiful sisters at uh, Our Lady of the Angels Monastery in Hansville, Alabama, and every evening at 9.30 p.m. Uh, with uh, Father Benedict Groeschel and uh, Simonetta, and those are only available here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Angelo in the great state of Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Angelo, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Father, I have a question. How do I approach my son? His daughter got married with a simple ceremony officiated by a girl, and uh, if by some divine intervention they decide to have it blessed by a priest, how is that done? Okay, well, it, it can be done, uh, obviously, and then we would hope it, it would be done uh, if, a, if a couple gets married, uh, you know, in Valley as well, illicitly, by a justice of the peace or some other, you know, minister, a Catholic needs to be married by a priest or a deacon or a bishop. Um, what we call blessed is is not the proper canonical term. It's called convalidation, which basically means that the the couple uh, gives consent in front of a bishop, a priest, or a deacon. Uh, it's not renewal because renewal is, you know, uh, saying the doing the consent over again and. We're saying that first one didn't count because a Catholic, in the same way, you know, I, I bring this out with, with the Eastern Orthodox. If you're if you're not married by the priest, you're not married in their eyes. So it's Catholic and Orthodox are on the same page. You need to have what they call canonical form, which is that there's uh, someone who's validly ordained, who's the official witness of that vow. So a marriage can be, you quote, normalized, uh, convalidated, uh, or as they said, some people call blessed. If they do that, and they need to fill out the paperwork, talk to the local Catholic priest, it can be done. Um, if this is their first marriage to anyone, as long as there were no prior marriages involved, 
and no need for uh, an annulment. Um, this can be done, and you know, people think, oh, well, they got married outside of church. That can be fixed. Uh, you know, if you know this is their first marriage, um, they would need to do their consent again in front of a priest, bishop, or deacon. Um, I encourage people to think about it. If you know people in that situation, to remind them that this can be taken care of, because until they get that marriage uh, convalidated and recognized, they're not able to receive the sacraments. They can't go to communion. All right, they can't go to confession. So. We want them to be be restored into full communion with the church. God bless you, Angela. We'll keep you in our prayers. Kay is a first-time caller in Cleveland, Ohio, listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Kay, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hi. This is a quick question about God the Father. Does God the Father have emotions? I know he has true love, but does he have human emotions as well? Well, because the, the Father is part of the Holy Trinity, and so you cannot separate, you make a distinction, but you can't separate the Father from the Son or from the Holy Spirit. The Son has a, a true, full human nature, and he has passions and emotions in his human nature uh, because of that hypostatic union with his um, his divine personhood you can't separate the persons therefore the father and the son and the holy spirit in a sense uh, have and experience uh, emotions uh, certainly that it's different because it's not in any way um, limited like ours is and uh, we don't have the proper control over our emotions all the time uh, Adam and Eve did have control, all right? This is what we call concupiscence. It's a consequence of original sin that there's a disordering of the passions. Um, but God the Father is not like Mr. Spock, who has no emotions. Sometimes people think of God in that way. He's so utterly transcendent. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. And he created us out of love. And, you know, to say, this, was God ever sad or happy... Well, these are things that you and I can identify with. Certainly his happiness, his sadness is going to be something that we could never fully comprehend and appreciate, and yet it's part of who we are, and because Jesus has this uh, human nature since the uh, incarnation when he was conceived in the, in the womb of his mother, you know, God is participates in that now. 833-288-EWTN. We could probably squeeze one more in if you called right now at 833-288-3986. Tommy writes in. (laughs) Tommy wants to know, does the Bible say explicitly how the priest has the power to transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ? It doesn't say it explicitly, but it doesn't say the word Bible in the Bible either. So, I mean, if you're only limited to what's in the text, um, he gave the power to the priest because he said, "Do this in memory of me." And we see this at the, you know, at the um, on the road to Emmaus, he is recognizing the breaking of the bread. Saint Paul talks about uh, how you know the the, the priest uh, takes the bread and the wine. So this has been done. Uh, there are certain words and things that are not in the scripture, but John tells us not everything Jesus said and did is contained in scripture. So just because it's not mentioned, like confirmation, um, uh, penance and confession, 
Um, doesn't mention Monsignors in the Bible either. But it doesn't say Bible in the Bible. That's my biggest point. Yet there's no Christian who doesn't call that book the Bible, but the Bible doesn't call itself the Bible. So therefore, it must be something outside the Bible that's just equally uh, of authority, and that's what we call the, the church, the magisterium. Words of the Epiclesis are in there, right? That's right. Um, and then finally today, Jim says, I frequently hear Baptist people say, the church didn't give us the Bible, the Bible gave us the church. How do I respond? Uh, tell me, he needs to go back and look at time, because <laughs> the scriptures were not written, all right? That's when it's the sacred text, until after the church. Jesus says in the Bible, okay, uh, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. At no point does Jesus say, write this down. Or this is my book, okay? The written text happened after the oral tradition, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John verbally told people what Jesus said and did. Then they put it into writing. So the earliest we, we believe any of the scriptures or the gospels were written was 45 or 40 A.D. Jesus rose and it was 33 A.D. So where did the Bible come from? It came from the church, and they're not in competition with each other. The oral tradition precedes the written tradition, and the church is the guardian of, of sacred scripture and revelation, but it's not a, uh, it's like Pope Benedict said, it's not either or, it's both and. You know, and that's really, to me, it's a, it's a bit of an interesting argument coming from a Baptist, because we could probably have a, a pretty substantial conversation with lots of documentation as to when the Baptist church started. Exactly. I mean, you know, John Smith, I mean, where, who, 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 who invented this thing? Uh, who's the successor of St. Peter? I think it's the Bishop of Rome last time I looked. Yeah, it's uh, even as, uh, as our good friend Deacon Harold Burke Sivers likes to say, even Siri knows. If you ask Siri who founded the Catholic Church, she'll that tell says you. says it all Jesus right there. Christ. That's right. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for joining us to kick off another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes in the house tomorrow talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until we get together then, God bless.